Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government, law, and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We strongly suspected it was coming, but not now and not in this fashion. Monday evening, there was a thunderbolt from the Supreme Court as a draft of an opinion reversing Roe v. Wade and Casey v. Planned Parenthood leaked. The draft, by Justice Alito, singled out Roe as, quote, egregiously wrong, close quote, so wrong as to not deserve stare decisis respect, and including the words that conservatives have come of age dreaming about and progressives have come of age dreading. We hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. There have been some leaks from the court in the past, but nothing to rival the wholesale release of a draft in a case of the greatest magnitude. And speculation was immediate and rife as to the identity of the leaker and the perennial question, qui bono, who profits from the leak? Plausible scenarios appeared for perpetrators on either side of the aisle, Chief Justice Roberts, meanwhile, decried the leak as absolutely appalling and ordered the Supreme Court Marshal to investigate. But the intrigue over the leak paled in comparison to the implications of the decision itself, which, if it holds, looks likely to usher in a series of ever more severe restrictions in anti-abortion states and possibly efforts to prevent pregnant women even from getting abortions in neighboring states. Then there's the possibility that notwithstanding Alito's unjudicious pronouncement that the decision applies to abortion only, that in fact it will lay the groundwork for evisceration of other unenumerated fundamental rights, such as the rights to same-sex or inter-race marriage or to the use of contraception. To assess the 98-page draft itself and analyze the post-leak status of the court the major political parties, the pro-life and pro-choice movements, and, most of all, American women. I'm really pleased to welcome three of the country's sharpest legal and political commentators. And they are Jessica Levinson, a professor of law at Loyola Law School and the director of Loyola's Public Service Institute and Journalist Law School. Previously, she served as the president of the Los Angeles Ethics Commission. She's a legal contributor for CBS News, a columnist for MSNBC, and the host of the excellent Passing Judgment podcast. This is her first time as a guest on the podcast. Jessica Levinson, welcome to Talking Feds. Thanks for having me. And to eminent returning guest, Jane Mayer. She's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1995, where she serves as the magazine's chief Washington correspondent and covers politics, culture, and national security. Previously, she worked at the Wall Street Journal where she covered the bombing of the U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut, the Gulf War, and the fall of the Berlin Wall. She is the author of 2016 New York Times bestseller, Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right, which the Times named as one of the 10 best books of the year. Jane, thanks very much for returning to Talking Feds. Great to be with you. And Melissa Murray, the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law at NYU, 
the faculty director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network and a leading expert in family law, constitutional law, and reproductive rights and justice. She's an author of Cases on Reproductive Rights and Justice, the first casebook to cover that field. And she writes regularly for popular publications like the New York Times, the Washington Post, Newsweek, and The Nation, and is a regular commentator basically all over the place, including NPR, CNN, and MSNBC. Melissa, thank you so much for being here on this very portentous week. Thank you for having me, Harry. So let's start with the 98-page draft by Justice Alito for a putative majority of the five arch-conservatives. Let's get a little professorial. What is Alito's basic argument? And if you think it's flawed, what's the flaw in it? There are a lot of different ways that this opinion could have been written to do what it does. And it is obviously to overrule Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But the devil is in the details. And you could have imagined a decision that overrules Roe and Casey, but isn't quite as absolute and as absolutist as this decision is. This is a decision, I think, that leaves it all on the dance floor. There are no questions. This is unequivocal. It is absolutely the most extreme version of this opinion that you might imagine. And one of the things that Justice Alito rests his argument on is that Roe was egregiously wrong, one, because it is unmoored from constitutional text. So he terms this like it is an unenumerated right, which is to say it is not a right that is explicit in the Constitution. And he contrasts that with text-based rights like the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and other rights uh, that are actually specifically in the Constitution. That's kind of a fallacy, I think, because in making this argument about quote-unquote text-based rights, he focuses on these Bill of Rights amendments, and he talks about Amendments 1 through 8. But of course, the Bill of Rights is 10 amendments, and the one that he sort of stops short of discussing is the Ninth Amendment, which says very clearly that you should not construe the enumeration of certain rights in this document, the Constitution, to mean the disparagement of rights that are not specifically enumerated. And I think it is a very clear indication, I think most people have read it as a very clear indication, that the enumerated rights are not necessarily exhaustive, that there may be additional rights that could be implied from the rest of the Constitution, from the spirit of the Constitution and its guarantees. Justice Alito does not even mention the possibility that that might exist or that that there is a specific constitutional provision that addresses this question of rights that are protected by implication. He then goes on to note that the abortion right that is protected in Roe and Casey is not deeply rooted in the history of this nation. And one of the things that I think he sort of stops short of explaining is that this view that fundamental rights, rights that are deserving of the utmost constitutional protection, are deeply rooted. That is one way of thinking about fundamental rights, but it is not the only way of thinking of fundamental rights. It happens to be the vision of fundamental rights that this conservative majority subscribes to. But other justices in the past have talked about fundamental rights sort of stemming from a notion of liberty or from the concept of ordered liberty. And that might be more expansive and, again, not historically based. And the problem, of course, with thinking about history is that there is a long history in the United States of just not protecting certain things because, A, we may not have thought of them at the time the Constitution was drafted, or B, we were in the throes of some other kind of viewpoint that 
we have since repudiated and disavowed. So, you know, it was deeply rooted at one point in our country's history that we should have Jim Crow segregation, a, a nationwide system of apartheid, if you will. But we have repudiated that. So this idea that we can only recognize as constitutionally protected that which is historical, that which we have had in the past, and that everything else is somehow a constitutional apostasy. I mean, I think it's a very limited view, but it is the kind of view, the kind of incoherent view, I think, that this opinion really takes and runs with. So let me follow up on that. I I can't help uh, my nerd self has to keep going a little bit more on the law here. First, as you say, he does distinguish textual and non-textual. It's a little bit already artificial in the sense that the argument for abortion and other rights is textual in the sense of what is contained within liberty. And also there are certain rights in the Bill of Rights, the right, say, of the press, you have to have constitutional malice. That's the First Amendment. Of course, it's not put out in so many words. But the biggest thing to me here that I would add, and I wanted to get Jessica and Jane's thoughts about this, I think the real sort of parlor trick here or sleight of hand is not necessarily using the analysis of whether a right is rooted in history and tradition, but defining the right in a way that makes it set up to fall. So you say, and it's of course true, we had Jim Crow laws, and if you think about the right, say, to marry someone of another race, if you define the right that you're trying to see whether it's rooted in that narrow term, marry someone of another race. Well, of course, it's clear that there's no history of allowing that. On the contrary, it was a criminal prohibition. The other cases in not just abortion, but unenumerated rights give a much more principled or abstract view of the right in question, for example, to marry someone of your choice. But his conceit of of zeroing in on the narrowest way of putting things, I think sort of sets up any putative right for failure. Did I say that okay, Professor Levinson? And is that too hard to follow? Not at all. I talk to my students about this a lot. I just finished my constitutional law semester. And this idea of how you decide to define the rules of the game will determine who's going to win. And that's what this opinion does, right? He basically works backwards. And I think that Melissa laid this out so well in the sense that at every time he has a choice, he chooses to define either whether or not we respect unenumerated rights or how we define what an unenumerated right or what a fundamental right is. Every time we have a turn in the road, he chooses a rubric that indicates the only place we're going to get is to this place where there's nothing in the Constitution that would protect this right to an abortion. So this whole discussion he has of what's written in the Constitution, what's not written in the Constitution, and as Melissa says, completely ignoring the fact of the Ninth Amendment. There's so many other ways that you could take this. You could explain that the Constitution is this document that's supposed to live for a long time, and therefore we can't define every right, and we can't define it with specificity the way we would if we had a statute. And let's be honest, even enumerated rights, we haven't clearly defined exactly what they mean. Let's think about equal protection. We basically know what that means, but it takes court cases to determine what's actually protected under equal protection. The same thing is true for the 14th Amendment, for that word liberty. 
It takes court cases to determine what's actually protected. That's what judges and Supreme Court do, right? Yeah. And Jane, I think the parched or blinkered quality extends even to the tone of the opinion. No, I mean, it struck me. I wonder if you had this view from the outside that there's a real caustic antipathy or disparagement of abortion. Did it seem to you just as a matter of writing that the content for abortion is a right wafted off the page? (laughs) I mean, it had the feeling of 50 years of pent up anger and resentment. This had the feeling of a blast, not from a judge, but from a combatant in the culture wars. That's what it felt like to me. And it's interesting, among the people that I interviewed this week was George Frampton, who was a clerk to Harry Blackman at the time when this decision was being written, and who worked very hard on it himself. And he said to me, you could take issue with the Roe decision, but this isn't just taking issue with it. He said that Alito treated the Roe decision the way Russia has treated Maria Paul. He said, you know, it just blasted the hell out of it. I mean, brutalize it, basically. Can I say he sort of pissed all over it? (laughs) I think you could say that. Also, what Frampton said was, there's no sense that Alito is interested in a balancing act in trying to weigh the different rights and and needs of the country at this point. I mean, in fact, he takes open umbrage at the idea that the justices might take note of public opinion in this country, which at this point is about two to one in favor of upholding Roe v. Wade. And he belittles that idea. So at a time when there's a concern that Trust in the court is eroding because people see it as a political institution and not a place just of neutral justice. This is an incredibly political opinion. And how does he purport to cabin the ruling? If, you know, I think the thrust of what we're all saying is he could have run this uh, trick on same sex marriage, contraception, any of a number of so called unenumerated rights. What is to stop them from doing it? Or even what does he say for the putative majority, you know, to give the country some measure of comfort that they won't be on a demolition mission for everything else? Well, I got a question for you lawyers. In this draft opinion, he claims that this only pertains to abortion. Can you wall something off like that? Yeah, I'm I'm yeah, you got me going here cuz that line has not received enough attention cuz that is the soul of anti-judicial. That's that's Bush v. Gore. That's exactly what courts don't do. They have principles that apply in different situations and saying that I think in a way is the sort of most anti-judicial. Well, here, Melissa, you were all your dander was also getting up. Come on in. So, so this is the part of the opinion that is absolute gaslighting, and he knows it's gaslighting. It's completely disingenuous, the idea that you might be able to sequester the question from abortion from every other right that is undergirded by this protection for liberty in the 14th Amendment, and that includes rights to marriage, same-sex marriage, interracial marriage, contraception, the right of parents to raise their children in the manner of their choosing. And you know, he disclaims that there is any 
repercussion for any of these other rights on the grounds that abortion is distinctive. And the distinction, he notes, is that these other rights do not involve the destruction of an unborn human being, as he puts it, um, and it doesn't involve the destruction of, quote unquote, potential life. Okay, um, that's not textual. That's not a constitutional principle on which to distinguish between different rights and how you cabin them. And so, so there's that. And further, it's, I'm not even sure as a logical matter that it holds because Justice Alito is also the author of the 2014 opinion in Hobby Lobby versus Burwell. And that was the case involving a challenge to the ACA's contraception mandate where a corporate employer, Hobby Lobby, the craft store, refused to comply with the contraceptive mandate on the ground that it allowed certain forms of contraception to be subsidized to its employees. And among those different forms of contraception included some long-acting contraceptives like the IUD, the intrauterine device, Mirena or whatnot, as well as some forms of oral contraceptives that prevent the implantation of a fertilized egg in the uterine wall. Hobby Lobby characterized those forms of contraception as abortofacients, basically said every time you use an IUD, every time you take one of these pills, it's essentially like an abortion because it prevents the implantation of the egg in the uterine wall. Once post, decide, post fertilization, post fertilization, and so again, this is a you know particular vision of when life begins, and the idea of these contraceptive methods stopping it is what makes them quote unquote abortofacients. And Justice Alito did not criticize that, did not interrogate it in his opinion, upholding the corporation's rights to refuse to comply with the ACA, and it sort of is the path forward. Once you decide you can recast certain forms of contraception as basically abortions in pill form, then you've opened up the whole vista for beginning to roll back rights to contraception. So IUDs, like a very common form of contraception, especially for women who are past having children, that's off the table because it's quote unquote an abortion. If abortion is outlawed, then that would be outlawed as well. And he doesn't engage this at all. And, and it's part of a record that he himself is actually spent his career compiling on the court. An interesting aspect is he writes in February and it leaks in May. So there were dissents in process of being prepared that may have included some of these points. And I'll just make one other. Look, it's very tendentious and I think problematic to the extent he tiptoes with the idea that an embryo is a unborn human being. That's not the place of the court to decide. But one understands that there may be some interest that a state has when you're talking about the abortion decision, it's incoherent or non sequitur to say that's what goes to the existence of the right in the first place. No, that's what goes to the ability, the well-recognized ability under Roe and Casey to have certain regulations down the line. That's the compromise there. And he uses it, in fact, at the get-go to say, well, here's why there's no right in the first place. Okay. Just a sort of interesting side question. How do you think Alito gets the drafting assignment here? Why him and how does it work? Can I take a stab at this? Please. So um, it, it's generally the prerogative of the chief justice when he is in the majority to assign the writing of the opinion. So it could be the case. This is a theory my strict scrutiny podcast co-host, Leah Lippman, has floated that- No relation. 
<laughs> no, no, no relation to Harry, um, but but they are simpatico in a lot of ways. But her view, and this is sort of a, a theory that we're we're just playing around with. Um, the Chief Justice is in the majority. A lot of people have suggested that he is not, but the Chief Justice is actually in the majority, and he assigned this to Justice Alito in part because he knew Justice Alito like the eight-year-old in the marshmallow experiment, would not be able to help himself, would not be able to restrain <laughs> himself, would not be able to be moderate, would write something so unbelievably extreme that it would actually lose some of the votes in the majority, and then they would have to temper it and write something more moderate, which might have been the Chief Justice's institutional inclination all along. So that's very high-level, five-dimensional chess. The other option, I think, is that the Chief Justice is not in the majority, which then leaves it to the most senior justice in the majority, who would be Justice Thomas, to write this opinion. And could be the case that Justice Thomas, who has been dying for this to happen for his entire career on the court... Yeah, let's be clear. This is the holy grail. Oh, yeah. You know, the opinion they grew up dreaming about. This the is the white whale. One, right? This is the white whale. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Justice Thomas, if this is the white whale, he is Captain Ahab on this. Um, mm -hmm. But maybe he's not ready to do, or maybe he knows he's not the one that needs to be doing this. And this was written in February. So it's before everything leaked about Ginny Thomas and the texts and whatnot. But maybe he has some sense that he's probably not the guy to write this. Um, he may have offered it to Justice Barrett, um, because I think yeah. she is the person that I would have suspected would be the one writing this. And maybe she decided like, you know, I want no part of this. I don't want to go down as the Harry Blackman of the right. And, and she disclaimed it. And then there was Justice Alito who was like, literally put me in coach. I'm ready to play. And, and boy, was he ready. And those are a couple theories about how this got assigned. I have a question again for the, the lawyers here. Is there any indication sort of as a, or a pattern of behavior that Clarence Thomas generally avoids writing controversial opinions? I mean, is, is there a reason to think that he would delegate it to someone else? He's mostly written controversial dissents and concurrences. And so exactly. he often likes to write for himself and he doesn't often get takers for some of his more controversial takes. But I think you're right, Jane. It's rare to see him with a kind of blockbuster opinion. You know, maybe he's saving himself for next term when he writes the opinion that overrules Gruder. Or, you know, maybe he just like he knew that someone else should do this. Well, they do have incredibly busy docket of incredibly yeah. controversial opinions to write right now. So I mean, maybe what we're looking at is they divvied them up and each took one of their favorite areas. But who knows, maybe Clarence Thomas wants to weigh in on the subject of affirmative action. It's something he's, you know, wanted to take down. Or gun rights. Gun rights. Or yeah, I mean, it's really hard to know. To me, a couple things come to mind. First, exactly as Melissa says, he's the guy who's most comfortable staking out the craziest claim for one. He, it almost seems his psychological comfort zone oddly. So he's the guy you would have expected in this opinion to concur saying all of unenumerated rights should go or something like that. Second, he might have thought he does have this putative head of the five role. He might have thought that for the court, he's a bigger target of enmity in the country, and that might be bad for the court for it to be him. I do think, right, Alito would have jumped up and down. Just one more quick thing, which is all three of them, they wouldn't want it because in their confirmations, they had played footsie. And yes, they didn't say it exactly, but they certainly suggested, as, as Collins is now saying, actually Barrett didn't, but Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, that they wouldn't do this. And they're young. You know, I, I think he would want to spare them the calumny of being the author of this. 
we don't know that he hasn't written a completely bonkers concurrence saying right, that, like everything right. else is on the table too. Um, and it may be that that's his inclination, but he recognizes he probably couldn't get Kavanaugh and Gorsuch to sign on to that. What do you think, by the way, how many dissents here? Who's writing? Any thoughts, Jessica, about what we'll be hearing from them? Well, I'll start and say, I think there's going to be at least two. I see Kagan as writing a killer dissent that basically incorporates the points we've been making and just shows his complete incoherence with the rest of their jurisprudence. He tried to anticipate it, not very persuasively, a little bit in the draft itself. So with respect to why is Justice Alito writing the majority, I suspect this is Chief Justice John Roberts' way of trying to control the situation. I actually thought it was going to be Justice Barrett. I thought that he was going to be, and maybe this is too simplistic, but happy enough for you know the conservative woman on the court to be the one to make this decision. But I think the idea that if you give it to Justice Alito, who we know otherwise would write such a caustic concurrence, and then you show him, if you want to maintain your position as author of the majority, you're going to have to soften this language. It's the only way of trying to cabin him in. Now, with respect to the dissents, I suspect that it's Justice Kagan who is going to be the one to show that the whole conversation we just had, that as a matter of jurisprudence, as a matter of interpreting the text and the cases, there's no way this can be confined to just abortion, right? That just makes no sense, that it can't just be the right to reproductive rights. It has to go to the right to marry the partner of your choosing. It has to go to the right to contraception. She's going to show us how the dominoes fall. And then I suspect that it's Sonia Sotomayor who writes the opinion saying, and let's not forget there are real people behind this. Let's not forget what actually happens to the 13-year-old who's raped, to the 15-year-old who's a victim of incest. Let's not forget the 25-year-old who has the ectopic pregnancy. So I suspect that's the way it splits. Justice Kagan says, look at everything else that's going to happen with respect to the law. And Justice Sotomayor says, and look what happens to real people as a result. That seems trenchant to me. One last question on the substance of the opinion, and then let's go to the many, many, many repercussions. How would you assess the prospects for the opinion actually not commanding a majority of the court come June? I think this is the majority opinion. I think the language will soften, and maybe part of the purpose of the leak is so that the language softens and we all say, oh, maybe because it's wrapped up in slightly different words, we shouldn't be so upset about it. But there's nothing to me, even given the misleading answers that the justices gave during confirmation hearings, which I don't think they honestly care that much about at all, I don't see any of that five-member putative majority moving off of this. They've been waiting so long, and this is why many of them were on the court at all. Melissa, Jane, you both agree? I mean, it just seems to me this would have been stitched up in advance. I understand the whole, and this comes with the leak, the whole uh, idea of Roberts maybe trying to bring Barrett or Kavanaugh along, but this was not a sort of casual, well, let me think about it at conference. I'll start here and see where things go. I, I do think this is really considered and the product of 20 years in a way of conservative culture. Longer. 
Well, I, I disagree slightly. Last year in the Fulton case, Justice Alito really had his dander up. Like, and it was surprising because the conservatives had really held the day there. That was the case involving um, whether or not Philadelphia could force Catholic social services to comply with its anti-discrimination norm. And it was surprising that Justice Alito was quite so angry in his writing because the conservative had won. It expanded the free exercise clause. Um, and there was sort of a, a weird frisson in the writings between Justice Alito and Justice Barrett. And you, you almost got the sense that maybe Justice Alito had been in the majority or was the majority opinion and had lost his majority because he wanted to go too far and too fast. And I could entirely see something like that happening here. He's given the opinion, he writes it, and when it's circulated among the majority, there's someone, like maybe it's a Kavanaugh, maybe it's a Barrett, who's like, whoa, I did not sign up to go all the way like this. And especially, I think, Kavanaugh, who I think on questions of same-sex marriage, same-sex sexuality, LGBTQ rights, might not want to be viewed as sort of opening the door to challenging that, at least not yet. And I could imagine someone saying like, no, this is too much. You've got to moderate this. And the leak, I think, could result in either sort of gauging public opinion about whether this is actually too extreme or, I think more precisely, lashing that wobbly conservative to the mass and saying like, this is the final opinion. And if it changes, everyone's going to know it's because you were the one who wobbled and now it's more tempered, it's more moderate, and we haven't done the full measure, which we were poised to do. And so I wonder if that's what's going on here, because I can't imagine Justice Alito ever wanted to write something moderate. But I also think that there have been plenty of times in the past where he's lost the majority because he's been too strident. Perfectly said, I think. And he does seem like the sort of angriest member of the court, but what a mess, no matter how it goes. If in some way this seems sort of aimed at Kavanaugh, who has now become something of the the swing vote maybe on this issue, I can see it going either way and being motivated by either side, really. And one thing that sort of occurs to me is that Kavanaugh in particular may be sensitive to not wanting to look like a liar during his confirmation hearings when he spoke about Roe v. Wade. And Collins took that as a promise that he wasn't going to overturn it because he was already being accused of being a liar during his confirmation hearings by Christine Blasey Ford. And so this is probably a pretty sensitive issue of wanting to look like he is an upstanding and honest character when he went through his confirmation hearings. And so I would think this issue of making it look like he's out there changing his position and contradicting what he said in confirmation might be touchy with him, particularly. Yeah, no, I really agree with it. It's at the the heart of his legacy. I just, my best guess is all those considerations had to have happened before. But on the other hand, the reason he was chosen at that time for this position is because he was seen by the anti-abortion movement as a reliable anti-abortion vote. And that's a lot of what was going on in that confirmation. And even though he was kind of making moderate noises and open-minded noises, I don't think anyone who really followed it closely, including, I have to wonder about Collins, did she really believe him? If she did, I, you know. I, 
I think it's right that we're looking at Kavanaugh. And that was part of my theory of why it's a conservative leak to keep Kavanaugh with the majority. And I think he cares about both things, right? He cares about looking like he was open-minded, like he wasn't lying, quote unquote, during confirmation hearings, but also like he's not completely abandoning the entire movement that he grew up in. But what I wanted to emphasize is when we're talking about potentially losing Kavanaugh for the majority, that doesn't mean suddenly we're back into the world we are now. That means we're looking at the narrower path that Chief Justice John Roberts seemed to be floating in the oral arguments, where he's going to almost completely gut the Roe-Casey line, and he's going to put that line at 15 weeks. It doesn't suddenly mean that we're back to the Casey world. So we're really having a discussion about, is Roe just actively overturned? Do we see that line in the opinion? Or does Roe become a hollow, empty promise and it's essentially gutted? But those are our only realistic options here. Yeah, it's an excellent point. And by the way, in either event, even if they get it completely, you know, if Alito is thinking this like gets the court out of the business, it's a hallucination. There's going to be all kinds of statutes that will be coming their way. And if they draw the line at 15 weeks, there'll be all kinds of statutes. And that, again, plays out both ways. You can either think, That means, from the point of view of a conservative who wishes Roe will be overturned, the chances will come and come and come. If Roberts is hoping to actually draw a line that then holds, the court will have quite a lot of backstopping to attempt to do. Okay, it's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature, which explains some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. And today's issue is the law, or lack thereof, governing recusals by Supreme Court justices. The recent revelation of Justice Thomas's wife's deep involvement in events culminating in the January 6th insurrection have given rise to a chorus of calls for Justice Thomas to recuse himself from any cases that raise issues related to the efforts of Trump partisans to undo Biden's win. But what law is there to govern such requests? Well, to learn about that, we are pleased to welcome Shay Wiggum, an American actor best known for portraying Elias Eli Thompson in the great drama series Boardwalk Empire. He has also appeared in the first season of True Detective and the third season of Fargo, as well as in numerous films, including Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, The Wolf of Wall Street, and Joker. He was recently cast to appear in the upcoming Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Parts 1 and 2. So I give you Shay Wiggum on recusals by Supreme Court justices. What law governs Supreme Court justice recusals? The recent revelation of Jenny Thomas's deep involvement in events culminating in the January 6th insurrection have given rise to a chorus of calls for her husband, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, to recuse himself from any cases that raise issues related to Trump partisans' effort to undo Biden's win. As it turns out, while there is a legal framework purporting to govern recusals, Supreme Court justices decide for themselves whether they must step aside, which makes the likelihood of a Thomas recusal small. Two laws speak the potential obligation of a federal court judge to avoid participating in any individual case. The first is the Code of Conduct for the United States Judges. 
That code sets out a range of situations in which federal judges are ethically obligated to recuse themselves, including any situation in which the judge's impartiality might reasonably be questioned because a spouse has a potential interest in the case. The code, however, expressly excludes Supreme Court justices from its coverage. The law that on its face does apply to Thomas's situation is in Section 455 of Title 28 of the United States Code. That legal provision extends to all federal judges, including justices, and it provides that a judge must recuse if a holding in a case could substantially impact the interests of a spouse. But, and here's the rub, the justice herself can apply the provision. So a few years ago, when the Sierra Club moved under Section 455 for Justice Scalia to recuse from an environmental case after he had gone duck hunting with Vice President Cheney, Scalia himself denied the motion with a 21-page opinion. If a January 6th case seeks evidence that includes emails from Jenny Thomas, there is a strong argument that Section 455 would require her husband, Justice Thomas, to step aside. The decision, however, would be his. It's conceivable that the Chief Justice might try to persuade Thomas to recuse himself for the good of the court, but persuasion is different from legal compulsion. As for the broader calls for Thomas to recuse in any case involving January 6 because of his wife's ardent participation in the big lie, it's difficult to see Thomas agreeing. His likely position would be, if he even has to state it, that Jenny's material interests are not at stake and he could decide independently notwithstanding his spouse's strongly held views which he may share. For these reasons, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi recently called for a code of ethics that applies not just to the conduct of federal judges, but Supreme Court justices too. For Talking Feds, I'm Shea Wiggum. Thank you very much, Shay Wiggum, for explaining that nettlesome topic. Right now, you can catch Shay in Star's Gaslit program, a new series with Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we stir up a discussion around cocktails. Make your own or buy them ready to drink. There's no question that mixing a delicious cocktail is truly an art form. Precise measurements and proportions, creative substitutions, the presentation itself, and even the speed of delivery are all factors that earn great mixologists the reputations they deserve. But for people who may not stock things like triple sec and bitters, a ready-to-drink cocktail that's pre-measured and mixed just might be worth pulling off the shelf. Ready-to-drink cocktails don't necessarily give you the satisfaction of creating a drink from scratch, but they do offer up undeniable convenience, removing the complexity of recipes, the burden of acquiring ingredients, and the time it takes to measure, pour, mix, crush, stir, and of course, repeat. Plus, you still have the ability to customize your drink, adding a splash of this or that, here or there, to your liking. So, whether you're into customization or convenience, ready-to-drink cocktails give you a little bit of both. Now, who says you can't have your cocktail and drink it too? So what's better, customization or convenience? Probably depends on the situation. It can be fun crafting your own cocktail. 
But when time is short, ready-to-drink cocktail sure does hit the spot. Either way, you can grab all the ingredients you need for a great craft cocktail or get your ready-to-go favorite at Total Wine & More. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. There's so much to talk about what could happen in the States, but we've teased around now about the leak so much, and it's very interesting. So let's move to that, and maybe we'll double back. Our overall question, who did it and why, but you had this very interesting article today, Jane, that shows it's not so unprecedented. Please jump in and educate us. Well, sure. So who did it and why? I have to say I interviewed Bob Woodward, sort of the dean of investigative reporters in Washington, and asked him, and he said, everybody's a suspect. <laughs> you know, he thinks that, you know, and he said, John Roberts is a suspect. You know, everybody's a suspect. None of us really know. But going back into the history, what was interesting to me was that, first of all, there have been two previous leaks in Roe v. Wade, and they were in the early stages of the deciding the opinion in the first place. The first was in 1972, and the leak appeared on the front page of the Washington Post, July 4th, 1972. It was clearly someone with incredible insider information. And what it seems to have been was an effort to freeze what was then the position in place, which was going to be a vote in favor of abortion rights. And at the time, Chief Justice Berger was opposing abortion rights, and there were two vacancies on the court, and and Berger was trying to hold off the publication of that decision, the announcement of the decision, in hopes that if he could get those two vacancies filled by Nixon, who had just been reelected, that he might be able to change the outcome of the vote. And the people who favored abortion rights, which was going to win at that point in 1972, included William O. Douglas, Justice Douglas, who was furious with Berger for trying to manipulate the outcome by holding it off and waiting for two more justices and hoping he could pull one over with him to the anti-abortion side. And so the suspect in that leak, according to a couple people I interviewed, including Doug Brinkley, who's a, a historian who's working on a book in which Douglas is a major character, he suspects it's possible that Justice Douglas himself leaked. Wouldn't have been the first time, right? No, no. He was an inveterate leaker to the press, and and he used it to sort of further his agenda in many different ways. And he was also just a passionate supporter of the idea of individual liberty that included a zone of privacy for matters having to do with intimate relations including contraception and abortion. So anyway, it appears to have been a leak that was meant to shame Justice Berger and try to cement the majority in favor of abortion rights in place by making it public, what was happening behind the scenes. And so, you know, if you apply it to today, maybe this leak is an effort by conservatives to try to cement the majority in place and hold it behind taking down Roe. If you were applying that lesson, that would be what it was. The next leak happened the next year. It was a Time Magazine reporter, David Beckwith, who just got the news early about what the court's decision was going to be in Roe. And he and Time Magazine published it ahead of the court itself. But very shortly, like a day or two, right? Yeah. I mean, it was almost a glitch. 
Wasn't that because um, didn't Johnson die on the same like around that time, and that also perhaps may have led to a deferral on the row news? Well, no. So what happened? Yes, Johnson did die exactly on the day when the court released the news of the row decision. But what actually, at least according to David Beckwith, who I interviewed for this piece, the real issue was that Nixon was about to be sworn in by Berger at the second time he was inaugurated, and Berger knew that the decision was going to really anger. Nixon because it was a pro-choice decision. And he didn't want to face Nixon face to face right as the decision had just come out. So he postponed the decision by a week so it would come out after the inauguration and he didn't have to face the president, you know, nose to nose as he was swearing him in. And that then threw off Time Magazine's timing, which had the piece ready to go for the original date of the decision and went with it anyway. And it came out a little ahead of the court. A big moral here is the feet of clay when history comes out. So part of what's happening to the court today is it's very bad for their public image. There's been so much made about this leak and so much sanctimony about what a breach it is. But there's a history of leaks coming out of the Supreme Court. And I just didn't want the news lost that what really was the news is not just the leak, but the actual draft decision, which was momentous. It swamps it, and I agree, but I'll give the counterpoint in at least the modern era. So I clerked during a year of a very big abortion argument, the Webster case, and Rehnquist absolutely remonstrated us. We couldn't say anything to spouses or anyone, and any clerk would have known and would know today, I think. If it's a clerk, well, anyone in the court would know this is really, really serious business. It's shooting in the dark, but who better than us? Let's just take a few minutes. Jessica, you were early to the then counter-majoritarian position, as it were, that maybe was a conservative, and you seem to be joined now by more and more people. But give your reasoning for, if you still hold to it, why you think that's the place to be focused. I didn't realize I was early. I just gave my opinion. And actually, this, I think, picks up on what Jane just said, which is, Let's not lose sight of that the story is about the decision. And I think that's part of the reason why the leak did come from the conservative side, because she's telling us that, right? And so we are having this kind of diffused conversation about both the impact of the opinion and the leak itself. That's one thing that I think helps conservatives, which is this discussion about, and I do think it's a horrible breach to release a draft opinion. I clerked on the district court level. I can't imagine doing that to my judge. I can't imagine taking steps that I think would be such a betrayal. And then I think it's the idea that what we talked about, which is let's keep the majority together. Let's shame Kavanaugh into sticking with Justice Alito so it doesn't look like he's flip-flopping. And the other thing is let's look at the calendar. We're having this discussion in the beginning of May. And I think the hope is that part of the rage on the left for progressives, for the two in three people in America who support abortion rights, that our rage will diffuse before the midterms and that we're kind of getting conditioned or accustomed to it. And so it's better for us to have this moment of, frankly, horror for most of us in May than it is in the beginning of July, that that two months makes a difference when we're talking about the electoral calendar. So I know that there was this whole sort of conservative cottage industry and blaming Justice Sotomayor or one of the other liberals for this. And again, like to to Jessica's point, I, I don't see what's in it for them to leak this. 
the best time for this to come out if the ultimate goal is to galvanize public opinion around a sort of outraged response would be in June when this would ordinarily be released. Like releasing it now, I think, allows the energy to dissipate over time. It also means that if a more moderate opinion is actually the final decision of the court, you sort of take all the air out of this outrage and then you'll have the media saying, you know, it's a victory. Roe was not completely overturned when in fact Roe was just effectively hobbled and we're just deferring what will be inevitable and the dregs of this opinion will come back again just two years after the midterm elections. So it's not obvious to me that liberals have anything to gain from doing this, but I do think there's far more for the conservatives to gain, not only in holding the majority. And this court has been very clear. Um, they're not worried about the public. They're not worried about their liberal colleagues. They they don't care about what they think. They don't care about what we think. They've effectively, by dismantling voting rights and, and hobbling preclearance, they've effectively insulated themselves from any blowback that we might register at the ballot box as citizens. They don't care about anything but preserving the majority they have. And if they can't preserve this majority, then what has it all been for? Because again, this has been the great white whale of an issue. And if you can't deliver on this, what was the point of all of this in the first place? Yeah. I mean, what's going to be very important and we'll know in history is what's going on right now at the court and has been happening for the last two months because we just got a snapshot of February and this comes out in May. I'll just say that I remain in the less imaginative position of thinking that it's someone who's appalled by the uh, overruling of Roe just because it's such an act of desperation. It's not just a firing offense, but professional suicide. And these little sort of adjustments and jockeying, I just can't see there being worth it to any sensible conservative, at least clerk, and they'll have their other shot. Whereas for a liberal clerk, if really the sky is falling and it's an act of desperation, that could both emotionally or even practically move them to that very, very, very extreme measure. So I'm not actually convinced that this is career suicide for a conservative law clerk. I think that if they can go into the world and say in hushed tones- I'm the guy who kept Kavanaugh on the reservation? Yeah, I'm the one who kept the opinion together. You can thank me for 26, 27 states being able to completely outlaw abortion. I'd like my corner office now. I think that it used to be the case that it would have been career suicide. I now think you might get a slap on the back and a, you know, here's your signing bonus. I think it would be career suicide, though, for a liberal clerk. I think exactly. so, too. I think that's exactly, exactly. right. Wow. So you, you actually see a difference here. Career suicide for liberal, corner office for conservative. Wow. That's pretty cynical. Can I just join you, Harry, in saying I don't know? As a reporter, I just want to say leaks come from the weirdest places. Yeah, and in the point. history of the court's leaks, there was even one, I think, that came from the government printing office. I mean, there's a back office also at the court. There are other hands that are on these few secretaries, right. There's some hilarious and wild opinions on what this is, but we don't know. As a reporter, I am pro-leak, okay? Because I really think the dissemination of information is a good thing. Almost always. Not always, but almost always. But what I think would be a shame is if they 
discipline someone privately and secretly. We never find out who, and it's all covered up. And each side continues to point fingers at the other. It will be one more partisan fight. You know, I'd rather us get to the bottom of it and move on. What are the stakes for the court? Let's close out there. I mean, how damaging is this and how important to find out and have a resolution for the standing of the court as the supposed apolitical institution or whatever chimera it maintains? So I'm not sure that it matters that much if they find the person who leaked the information. I tend to think that the ship has sailed on our view of the court. To the extent that it didn't sail last term, the term before that, I mean, how many times does the court have to tell us exactly who they are before we believe them? So I'm not sure that this investigation really is going to change anybody's mind. I just had this conversation. I had an argument with somebody where I said, well, now nobody's going to see the court as anybody but at least five members as political actors. And that that has deep consequences for the court because they don't have a military that they can send in to enforce their decisions. They don't have a group of marshals who are going to say, no, this is going to happen. They depend on our respect. They depend on the power of the pen. And so if we don't respect them anymore, there's a lot of scary consequences. But you know what my friend said to me is, we're already all there, right? People who are looking at this court and decisions that have happened with respect to voting rights, with respect to First Amendment, anti-discrimination, this doesn't change our view. It just exacerbates our view. And I tend to think that that is now the right conclusion. Can I say one thing, Harry? I mean, we've been focused on this sort of bombshell of a leak and the final opinion that will be in the offing, but it's already a barn burner of a term. So, I mean, we're just focused on abortion. There's going to be a gun rights case. There are like a million different cases about religious liberty that I think are poised to seriously reorganize the Establishment Clause jurisprudence, expand the free exercise jurisprudence. Without so, I mean, doubt. And not to mention next term, right? Yeah. And then next term. They're so, I mean, rolling. No, this court is in a Tesla. And you know maybe this was just the one occasion where one justice was like, could we slow down a little bit? Because they're on a tear. All right. There you have it. And we will be following it over the next couple months, obviously, but in, in any event. That's where we are with this new majority. All right, we have like one minute left for our final feature of Talking Five, where we take a question from a listener, and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. So slightly outside court life, but this has been the worst, and I can attest to it as the father of a senior year in college admissions forever, and you have many, many high school seniors saying, I'm going to take a gap year. So our question is, If you were going to take a gap year, how would you use it? Five words or fewer, please. Well, I am a horrible basic cook, so I would take a cordon bleu cooking course. So that's four words, cordon bleu cooking course. There you go. Jane? I have to admit, I have never read the larger works of James Joyce. (laughs) I think it's time. (laughs) Wow. I just want to quickly say Michael Chabin's essay on Finnegan's Wake will make you feel not guilty for not having read it and (laughs) and why it actually is a mess. But okay, Jessica Levinson. So I think I'm more pedestrian. Visit museums and teach yoga. Nice. Yeah. And I'm kind of in with Melissa too. So get better cooking, tennis, guitar. 
All right, we are out of time. Thank you very much to Jessica Levinson, Jane Mayer, and Melissa Murray. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. We are available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. Download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. And we also now have our own YouTube channel, which you can find by going to YouTube and typing in Talking Feds. And you'll see a wealth of content, including one-on-one interviews and explainers from me, for example, of the rationale of Alito's draft opinion in the abortion case. You can follow us on Twitter at Talking Feds Pod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. Just in the last few days, we posted a discussion with Grid News reporter Steve Riley about the prevalence of QAnon beliefs among 2022 candidates across the country. Submit your questions to questions at talkingfeds.com. Whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate producer Olivia Henriksen, sound engineering by Matt McCardle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Adam Macias is our consulting editor. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Thanks very much for Shay Wiggum for explaining the law and practice of recusals by Supreme Court justices. Our gratitude, as always, to the fabulous Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later. Thank you.